Section three of the Vortex Blaster by E. E. Doc Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section three. No periodicity, no equation, of course. It was a statement, not a question. The lensman ignored as completely as did the observer, if not as flippantly, the distinct possibility that at any moment the observatory and all that it contained might be resolved into their component atoms. None whatever came flatly from Cloud. He did not need to spend hours at a calculating machine. At one glance he knew, without knowing how he knew, that no equation could be made to fit even the weighted average locus of that wildly shifting sigma curve. But most of the cycles cut this ordinate here, 751, so I'll take that for my value. This means 9.906 kilograms of duodec basic charge, with 1.5% over and 1.5% under that for alternates, neocarboloy casing, 53 millimeters on the basic, others in proportion. On the wire? It went out as you said it, the observer reported. They'll have him here in 15 minutes. QX, I'll get dressed then. The lensman and the observer helped him into his cumbersome, heavily padded armor. They checked his instruments, making sure that the protective devices of the suit were functioning at full efficiency. Then all three went out to the flitter, a tiny speedster really, a torpedo bearing the stubby wings and the ludicrous tail surfaces, the multifarious driving, braking side-top and under-jets, so characteristic of the tricky, cranky, but ultra-maneuverable breed. But this one had something that the ordinary speedster or flitter did not carry. Spaced around the needle beak there yawned the open muzzles of a triplex bomb-thrower. More checking. The lensman and the armored cloud both knew that every one of the dozens of instruments upon the flitter's special board was right to the hair. Nevertheless, each one was compared with the master instrument of the observatory. The bombs arrived and were loaded in, and Cloud, with a casually waved salute, stepped into the tiny operating compartment. The massive door—flitters have no airlocks, as the whole midsection is scarcely bigger than an airlock would have to be—rammed shut upon its fiber gaskets, the heavy toggles strove home. A cushioned form closed in upon the pilot, leaving only his arms and lower legs free. Then, making sure that his two companions had ducked for cover, Cloud shot his flitter into the air and toward the seething inferno which was loose atomic vortex number one. For it was seething, no fooling, and it was an inferno. The crater was a ragged, jagged hole, a full mile from lip to lip, and perhaps a quarter of that in depth. It was not, however, a perfect cone, for the floor, being largely incandescently molten, was practically level except for a depression at the center where the actual vortex lay. The walls of the pit were steeply, unstably irregular, varying in pitch and shape with the hardness and refractoriness of the strata composing them. Now a section would glare into an unbearably blinding white, puffing away in sparkling vapor. Again, cooled by an inrushing blast of air, it would subside into an angry scarlet, its surface crawling in a sluggish flow of lava. Occasionally a part of the wall might even go black, into pockmarked scoriae or into brilliant planes of obsidian. 
for always, somewhere, there was an enormous volume of air pouring into that crater. It rushed in as ordinary air. It came out, however, in a ragingly uprushing pillar as, as something else. No one knew, or knows yet for that matter, exactly what a loose vortex does to the molecules and atoms of air. In fact, due to the extreme variability already referred to, it probably does not do the same thing for more than an instant at a time. That there is little actual combustion is certain, that is, except for the forced combination of nitrogen, argon, xenon, and krypton with oxygen. There is, however, consumption, plenty of consumption. And what that incredibly intense bombardment impinges up to is, is altered, profoundly and obscurely altered so that the atmosphere emitted from the crater is quite definitely no longer air as we know it. It may be corrosive, it may be poisonous in one or another of a hundred fashions, it may be merely new and different, but it is no longer the air which we human beings are used to breathing. And it is this fact, rather than the destruction of the planet itself, which would end the possibility of life upon Earth's surface. It is difficult, indeed, to describe the appearance of a loose atomic vortex to those who have never seen one, and fortunately most people never have, and practically all of its frightful radiation lies in those octaves of the spectrum which are invisible to the human eye. Suffice it to say, then, that it has an average effective surface temperature of about 15,000 degrees absolute, two and one-half times as hot as the sun of Tellus and that it was radiating every frequency possible to that incomprehensible temperature, and let it go at that. And Neil Cloud, scurrying in his flitter through that murky, radiation-riddled atmosphere, setting up equations from the readings of his various meters and gauges, and solving those equations almost instantaneously in his mathematical progeny's mind, sat appalled for the activity level was, and even in its lowest dips, remained far above the level he had selected. His skin began to prickle and to burn. His eyes began to smart and to ache. He knew what those symptoms meant. Even the flitter's powerful screens were not stopping all the radiation. Even his suit screens and his special goggles were not stopping what leaked through. But he wouldn't quit yet. The activity might probably would, take a nose-dive any instant. If it did, he'd have to be ready. On the other hand, it might blow up at any instant, too. There were two schools of mathematical thought upon that point. One held that the vortex, without any essential change in its physical condition or nature, would keep on growing bigger, indefinitely, until, uniting with the other vortices of the planet, it had converted the entire mass of the world into energy. The second school, of which the aforementioned Karlowitz was the loudest voice, taught that at a certain stage of development the internal energy of the vortex would become so great that generation-radiation equilibrium could not be maintained. This would, of course, result in an explosion the nature and consequences of which this Karlowitz was wont to dwell upon in ghoulishly mathematical glee. Neither school, however, could prove his point, 
or rather each school proved its point by means of unimpeachable mathematics, and each hated and derided the other loudly and heatedly. And now Cloud, as he studied through his almost opaque defenses that indescribably ravening fireball, that assuriently rapacious monstrosity which might very well have come from the deepest pit of the hottest hell of mythology, felt strongly inclined to agree with Karlowitz. It didn't seem possible that anything could get any worse than that without exploding, and such an explosion, he felt sure, would certainly blow everything for miles around into the smitherinest kind of smitherines. The activity of the vortex stayed high, way too high. The tiny control room of the flitter grew hotter and hotter. His skin burned and his eyes ached worse. He touched a communicator stud and spoke. Phil, better get me three more bombs, like these, except up around— I don't check you. If you do that, it's apt to drop to a minimum and stay there, the lensman reminded him. It's completely unpredictable, you know. It may at that. So I'll have to forget the five percent margin and hit it on the nose or not at all. Order me up two more, then. One at half of what I've got here, uh, the other double it. And he reeled off the figures of the charge and the casing of the explosive. You might break out a jar of burn dressing, too. Some fairly hot stuff is leaking through. We'll do that. Come down, fast. Cloud landed. He stripped to the skin, and the observer smeared his every square inch of epidermis with the thick, gooey stuff that was not only a highly efficient screen against radiation, but also a sovereign remedy for new radiation burns. He exchanged his goggles for a thicker, darker, heavier pair. The two bombs arrived and were substituted for two of the original load. I thought of something while I was up there, Cloud informed the observers then. Twenty kilograms of duodec is nobody's firecracker, but it may be the least of what's going to go off. Have you got any idea of what's going to become of the energy inside that vortex when I blow it out? Can't say that I have, the lensman frowned in thought. No data. Neither have I, but I'd say that you better go back to the new station, the one you were going to move to if it kept on getting worse. But the instruments, the lensman was thinking, not of the instruments themselves, which were valueless in comparison with life, but of the records those instruments would make. Those records were priceless. I'll have everything on the tapes in the flitter, Cloud reminded, but suppose that the flitter stops one too? Or doesn't stop it, rather? In that case, your back station won't be there either, so it won't make any difference. How mistaken Cloud was. QX, the chief decided. We'll leave when you do, just in case. Again in the air, Cloud found that the activity, while still high, was not too high, but that it was fluctuating too rapidly. He could not even get five seconds of trustworthy prediction, to say nothing of ten. So he waited, as close as he dared remain to that horrible center of disintegration. The flitter hung poised in air, motionless, upon softly hissing underjets. Cloud knew to a fraction his height above the ground. He knew to a fraction his distance from the vortex. He knew with equal certainty the density of the atmosphere and the exact velocity and direction of the wind. Hence, since he could also read closely enough, 
the momentary variations in the cyclonic storms within the crater, he could compute very easily the course and velocity necessary to land the bomb in the exact center of the vortex at any given instant of time. The hard part, the thing that no one had as yet succeeded in doing, was to predict, for a time far enough ahead to be of any use, a usably close approximation to the vortex's quantitative activity, for, as has been said, he had to overblast rather than under, if he could not hit it on the nose, to underblast would scatter it all over the state. Therefore Cloud concentrated upon the dials and gauges before him, concentrated with every fiber of his being and every cell of his brain. Suddenly, almost imperceptibly, the sigma curve gave signs of flattening out. In that instant Cloud's mind pounced. Simultaneous equations, nine of them, involving nine unknowns, an integration in four dimensions, no matter, Cloud did not solve them laboriously one factor at a time. Without knowing how he had arrived at it, he knew the answer, just as the Hosinian or the Regellian is able to perceive every separate component particle of an opaque three-dimensional solid, but without being able to explain to anyone how his sense of perception works. It just is, that's all. Anyway, by virtue of whatever sense or ability it is which makes a mathematical prodigy what he is, Cloud knew that in exactly eight and three-tenths seconds from that observed instant the activity of the vortex would be slightly, but not too far, under the coefficient of his heaviest bomb. Another flick of his mental trigger, and he knew the exact velocity he would require. His hands swept over the studs, his right foot tramped down hard upon the firing lever, and even as the quivering flitter shot forward under eight Tellurian gravities of acceleration, he knew to the thousands of a second how long he would have to hold that acceleration to attain that velocity. While not really long in seconds, it was much too long for comfort. It took him much closer to the vortex than he wanted to be. In fact, it took him right out over the crater itself. But he stuck to the calculated course, and at the precisely correct instant he cut his drive and released his largest bomb. Then, so rapidly that it was one blur of speed, he again kicked on his eight G's of drive and started to whirl around, as only a speedster or a flitter can whirl practically unconscious of the terrific resultant of the linear and angular accelerations, he ejected the two smaller bombs. He did not care particularly where they lit, just so they didn't light in the crater or near the observatory, and he had already made certain of that. Then, without waiting even to finish the whirl or to straighten her out in level flight, Cloud's still-flying hand darted towards the switch whose closing would energize the Bergenholm and make the flitter inertialess. Too late. End of section 3